Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, I'm Grant Wall. Welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. We're continuing to do two podcasts a week, and we're going to start each episode with just a few minutes on the coronavirus latest with my wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, who's a medical analyst for CNN and the co-host of the podcast Epidemic. Then we'll have an interview with someone interesting from the soccer world. Today's interview guest is American Lauren Barnes of OL Reign and Melbourne City, who won the Australian League title on March 21st and got one of the last flights out of Australia back to the United States. A quick reminder, if you like the podcast, it would really help us out if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review, and we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. Onward! Hey there, we're recording this on Monday morning, March 30th, and I'm here on day 20 of home lockdown in New York City. With my wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, an infectious disease specialist who's a CNN medical analyst and the co-host of the podcast Epidemic. Thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. A few things to talk about here. We're living in the epicenter of the virus in the United States right now. You can hear ambulance sirens all day and night right now in New York City. Uh, Are this week and next week going to be the worst of it in New York City, and what does that entail? Well, time will tell. It's hard to know for sure right now because we are still not yet sure whether social distancing measures have been adequately um, implemented across the city. I think one of the things that I have seen that remains concerning is looking at use of public transportation across New York City. And while that has dropped off significantly in Manhattan, there is still pretty significant use of public transportation, whether it's the subway or buses, in the outer boroughs. So like Queens, the Bronx, uh, Brooklyn, just to name a few. And that's concerning um, in part because it means people are still going out. So why are they still going out? Well, for people who don't um, live in New York City who aren't as familiar with the city, those are um, less wealthy neighborhoods. You also have a lot of immigrants, a lot of people just doing very, you know, working class jobs. So these are people who are the nannies, the housekeepers, the restaurant workers, the drivers. And these are folks who cannot telecommute, who can't telework. And so in order to put food on the table to pay their rent, Um, they have to keep working. They don't really have a choice. And not to mention that some of these people are considered essential workers. So for example, the person at your checkout counter at the grocery store. So it's not surprising that we haven't seen social distancing happen the way we would like there. 
Um, it's really going to be tough to fully implement that without um, somebody stepping in, the New York City government, the New York State government, the federal government, to really pay people to stay home and to provide them with what they need to be able to stay home. Um, so when we saw last week Elmhurst Hospital, which is one of the public um, hospitals in Queens overrun with coronavirus patients, that was really no surprise because they have all of the factors setting up, uh, setting them up for something like that to happen. What do you make of the president and Dr. Anthony Fauci saying yesterday that we may well be looking at 100,000 to 200,000 coronavirus deaths in the U.S.? Well, to me, that's still too many deaths. Um, if you look at the population of China, they have more than four times the population of the United States. And to date in China, they've had just over 3,000 deaths from coronavirus. So let's divide that by four. You should have less than 1,000 deaths from coronavirus in this country. So what do you say to people who are like, I don't believe the numbers in China at all? Well, let's take it the opposite direction. So if you're saying that um, we're going to have 100 to 200,000 deaths from coronavirus in the U.S., and I, I frankly think that's somewhat optimistic, honestly, um, but let's say 100,000. Let's multiply that by four. That would be, uh, you know, on the order of about a, a half a million deaths from coronavirus in China. That's not something that you can just hide, that level of death. We're already seeing here these refrigerated truck uh, mortuaries for bodies just in Queens. You know, if you had had that wide scale numbers of deaths in China, we would know about that. Um, so, you know, maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle, but I really think that even with the estimates we're hearing now of between 100 and 200,000 coronavirus deaths in the U.S., that is still way out of proportion with what they saw in China. Uh, the president claimed without any evidence yesterday that masks are, quote, disappearing out the back door at New York City hospitals and that hospitals here have plenty of personal protective equipment for their needs. Are either of those claims accurate based on what you know as a practicing infectious disease doctor here? Well, first of all, I thought that comment was incredibly offensive. Uh, I mean, and the implication was that maybe we were even stealing them and selling them on the black market for our own profit. So that was beyond offensive. Um, but to give you some some numbers, to give you a sense, so he was asking, why did we go, why did one hospital go from needing 10 to 20,000 masks to 300,000 masks in a, a certain period of time? And so let me just, for people who don't work in the hospital sort of break this down for you. So the average medical team that's headed by an attending physician, so that's sort of the physician in charge of the team, uh, it's gonna be about 20 patients on average. And so under normal circumstances, between zero and one patient out of 20 has a medical condition that would require you to wear an N95 respirator mask. Today, with coronavirus, it's between 19 and 20 out of 20 patients because everybody has coronavirus in the hospital now. So that's basically a 20-fold increase in your need for masks. So then you multiply 10 to 20,000 by 20, that gives you 200 to 400,000. So 300,000 is smack in the middle of that. It makes complete sense. The numbers make complete sense, um, you know, that that's what the need is. Now, that said, 
we don't have those masks. So it's not like we're actually getting those 300,000 masks, um, you know, that he's describing. But that's what the need is. From the president, we've had these wild swings in what he says publicly. Just a few days ago, he was saying the cure can't be worse than the problem and saying he wanted mass gatherings in churches on Easter, which is less than two weeks away. Now he's saying we should social distance until April 30th and that those 100,000 U.S. coronavirus deaths would mean he's done a good job. Do you get any sense that he has a real strategy overall to deal with this virus? Well, so first of all, you can't take the cure if you're dead. So I think, you know, to extend the metaphor, that needs to be the priority. We need to keep people alive. We need to address the public health emergency. And then we can address the economic issues. Um, And the longer we dilly-dally, you know, in terms of what really needs to be done on the public health front, the longer these measures are going to need to be implemented, and frankly, the greater the economic pain. So if you really want to get us back to working and and get the economy going again, you really need to be much more aggressive on the public health front first. Um, And, you know, do I think he has a strategy? I think his strategy is, frankly, emotion. I think he's a very emotional president, and he leads through emotion. So we had a few reader questions here. Uh, The first one comes from Andres Contour, the legend. Uh, It says, hi, Grant. I would love your wife to answer, what is the purpose of the World Health Organization when they publish something like this? Uh, So uh, there's a tweet from January 14th that uh, is still up there, actually, on the WHO Twitter page uh, that reads, preliminary investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission of the novel coronavirus identified in Wuhan, China. Andres asks, as the authority, isn't the WHO supposed to fact check, double check, doubt, and be able to rebut something that was not proven, let alone that the source is the Chinese government? The question here, I think, is uh, how much do you trust the World Health Organization? Are they too much basically in bed with the Chinese government? Well, look, I think the United States has completely abdicated their role as leaders globally. Um, And so part of this is not wanting to make contributions to the World Health Organization and and other UN organizations saying that's not a good use of our money, Um, you know, really not wanting to engage on the international scale. If you go to places like Africa, as you know, you know, we've traveled there extensively, you go across the continent and the Chinese are everywhere. They're giving money for and and helping build massive infrastructure projects in exchange for access to natural resources. They're mining everywhere. And, you know, they're also building parliament buildings, bridges, Soccer stadiums. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, airports. And so they are stepping up in very concrete ways for other nations that need assistance. Whereas, you know, we'd look at it as, well, those people are not deserving we don't want to give, we want to focus our energies and taxpayer money at home. But that has a real impact. There's a real trade-off there. And, and sadly, we have, we're not even at the table anymore um, in the way that we once were. Are we in a position to not be totally trusting in the World Health Organization? I remember in Ebola in 2014, the WHO did really poorly, especially at first, on, on Ebola. I don't know how you feel how they've done on coronavirus so far. 
Well, I, I think it's a, an intensely political organization that has that's accountable to not just the United States and not just China, but to men, many, you know, all of its uh, member nations. Um, but particularly in this situation where the outbreak began in China, where China is, you know, frankly, one of the biggest funders now, one of the most important um, nations globally in terms of its political and economic uh, influence. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are going to be afraid to say anything critical of China. Um, and, and frankly, that's part of what they they do have to be mindful um, in order to get their jobs done. And, and sometimes there's a balancing act to be to be done, you know, to do the right thing. Next question comes from Jason Anderson. For a person with no signs of having COVID-19, what constitutes an acceptable mask for grocery store trips? Is my soccer snood up to the job? Jason, I, I think your soccer snood is definitely up to the job here. I think what you want is something that covers your nose and mouth, um, you know, that, that's comfortable, that you can breathe through, and ideally that's washable. So as soon as you get that get home from your grocery store trip, toss that soccer snoot in the wash um, and wash your face, wash your hands. Um, But I think that's a very reasonable approach to protecting yourself on these essential errands. Next question comes from Derek Ray, my friend, wonderful broadcaster. Uh, We've been noticing in our neighborhood people visiting friends in their backyards, sitting more than six feet away from each other. But is it advisable or not? Well, you know, there's a lot of ifs in, in that, um, you know, it depends on what they're touching. Um, you know, are they touching park benches? Are they touching picnic tables? Um, what are those made of? Are those wood? Are they metal? Are they plastic? So, you know, it's a little hard to say for sure. I think assuming that they are not having contact with physical items in the backyard that could have um, infectious virus on it, if they're sitting at least six feet away from one another outside, I think that's that's reasonable. But you would say not inside. Oh, probably not inside at this stage, no. Because that gets back to what you've talked about with having a bubble for your family. Yeah, the household bubble. And then also, if you guys check out, um, there's a bonus episode of the Epidemic Podcast, which is on transmission of the virus and this idea that the dichotomy between droplet and aerosol spread of the virus is is somewhat a false one and there there is probably both um, so when you're inside you do have to worry a bit more about aerosol spread um, so I I would not advise uh, interacting with people outside of your household bubble no one goes in or out to pop that bubble um, you know at, at this moment in time Lastly here, what are you looking for in the next few days here in the U.S.? Well, I would like to see um, the rest of the nation, not just New York City and a couple other um, jurisdictions, but really the entire country fully go on a uh, shelter-in-place-at-home lockdown, uh, which would really need to be implemented for a couple weeks here. But if we can really commit to that, that's what it will take to slow and hopefully stop transmission of the virus to the point where we could lift some of these social distancing measures and we could then implement um, things like contact tracing and testing, which would be far less um, damaging to the economy, but that would allow us to contain it from there. Dr. Celine Gounder is a medical analyst for CNN and infectious disease doctor and the co-host of the podcast Epidemic with Ron Klain, which you should definitely check out. Thanks so much for joining me. 
My pleasure. Big thanks to Dr. Celine Gounder. Next up is my interview with Lauren Barnes. Our guest today is Lauren Barnes. She plays for OL Rain in the NWSL, as well as Melbourne City in Australia. On March 21st, she played in one of the last pro sporting events on the planet, the W League Grand Final, in which her team won the title with a 1-0 victory over Sydney FC. Lauren, congrats on the title, and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Yeah, and first off, I just wanted to say, you played your final in an empty stadium in Melbourne. Uh, It was March 21st, just eight days ago. We're recording this on Sunday, March 29th. Uh, March 21st was day 11 of my lockdown here in New York City. I know Australia has a slightly different situation with the coronavirus. What were the circumstances for deciding to play the game where you were? Yeah, so um, like you said, there was different circumstances. Um, I obviously had family in LA and they were also on lockdown at the time. And I think Um, A lot of them were still surprised that we were playing, but at the time, Australia was not in lockdown. Um, The A-League was still going on. AFL was still going on. Um, I think almost all sports in Australia were still going on at the time. Um, We were playing behind closed doors um, as well as the A-League was playing behind closed doors. We were able to have, I think family and friends up to two people so i think there is maybe 80 family and friends in the stadium which was just kind of eerie at the time we were playing at amy park was which was a fairly big stadium and it to be empty was just um something i've never really experienced before um but yeah i think at the time and i spoke with someone a little bit about this earlier um with city the club um i never felt like I was forced to play or if I wanted to go home, I could easily go home. Like they were very supportive. Um, They're very concerned about our well-being and our health. Um, So I think in terms of being part of a club that was taking it very serious, I think City was. Um, But yeah, at the end of the day, it was two different worlds for me because I had family in LA that were at stay at home and lockdown and only essential stores were open. And in same time in Australia I was still playing still training still had the same routine as if it was a normal season without COVID-19 and cafes and everything like that were still open so um, it was a very interesting time um, stressful for an international because I think at the time we played on the 21st my flight was out the 22nd um, and at the time Obviously, with U.S. being on lockdown, borders were shutting, flights were being canceled. Um, there was fear of international flights being canceled. I think Qantas at the time had 60% of their flights um, grounded that were going to L.A. So, yeah, it was just crazy times. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you do have a story with that. You were able to get out of Australia and fly back to Los Angeles. Uh, could you tell that story? Yeah, of course. So I originally actually had a flight. So today's the 29th. I had a flight out the 27th, which would have been Friday. So uh, two days ago, I would have just been coming home because obviously after a final, you stay a couple of days, get your bags situated and packed, say your goodbyes. We have end of the year awards, all the 
nicks and stuff. So um, I actually, at the time, was obviously on a flight on the 27th with Qantas and I ended up calling my manager and saying that I want to switch it to an earlier flight. So the earliest one out I could have gotten at the time was the 22nd at 10 p.m. So I ended up switching that with Qantas and come to find out a lot of the later flights. So like 28th, 27th, and 26th, there was internationals on those flights that had been canceled. So they were all being pushed. And I think the idea behind that was to fill up the planes and make sure that U.S. citizens, Canadian citizens, whoever were trying to get back to the U.S. and get back to their appropriate um, areas, were all trying to condense down into um, one plane. So I guess um, they were trying to get those flights out as early as possible. So I think at the end of the day, switching my flight was the right thing to do. But I think at the end of the day, I would have kind of been not forced, but the flights would have been canceled and I would have been bumped up to an earlier flight anyways. Um, so yeah, we played the grand final. I had all my bags packed. Um, I was pretty nervous to fly because obviously with it being airborne and it's so contagious that you're obviously around so many people in an airport in a flight and my flight was packed. Um, Mm. no seats were open. Um, we actually had a cruise ship that was in Melbourne that was on the flight, which a lot of the cases had been coming from those, so I was just so nervous and so stressed. Um, but I had all the disinfectant you could think of. Um, <laughs> I had masks, I had gloves, like regardless if people are saying they were working or not, I had everything just in case it was the 1% that did hope. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I was prepared for sure. And as we were on the flight, the flight attendants, and to be fair, Qantas, like over the intercoms and stuff, were very calm and very informative and try to make the flight as comfortable as possible. Um, But they also were trying to get us seated and pushed out. And I think one of the flight attendants um, announced on the intercom that this was probably the last flight going out to LA. So I literally think I might've made the last flight and um, they were trying to push it out so they couldn't be canceled or, because I think at that time, regardless of anything, they could have just called off flights. Mm -hmm. Um, So got on that got into LA and it was a ghost town, which is crazy with customs and stuff in LA. It's usually a couple hours um, Mm -hmm. minimum to get through. But I just remember texting my family saying I've landed, I've gotten my bags and they hadn't even left um, my family home, which was about 45 minutes to an hour from LA because they thought customs was gonna be so long. Mm -hmm. So I ended up just kind of sitting there waiting for my family. Um, But yeah, it was just so surreal and the airports Melbourne was busy but when I got to LA it was so eerie which is just not usual and I fly so much in and out of LA and I've seen it at its worst and I thought definitely at this time it would be but there was not a soul in sight well I'm glad you're able to get home uh do you feel okay do you feel like you don't have any symptoms uh after being on that flight yeah um I'm in my seventh day of quarantine I've honestly seen only my mom, so it's been strange. (laughs) Um, And I have no symptoms, obviously, knock on wood. I still have seven more days that anything can appear. And obviously, with just this virus being so unknown, who knows after that. But um, I feel fine now. Um, That was also a big decision. I was afraid to fly and come home because my mom is in the higher risk percentile. And I Mm -hmm. didn't want to come home and bring anything. And 
Uh, we wear gloves and masks inside the house. Uh, we're six feet apart just to make sure everything goes as smoothly as possible and that I've done everything on my part that I possibly can do to keep her safe and not spread anything if I do have it. Because like you know, and you probably know firsthand with your wife that you can show no symptoms, especially my age. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm most likely okay, but I could potentially be carrying it and not knowing it. Um so yeah, that that was a big decision. I was I was debating whether just to stay in Australia and ride it out and it be a couple months and then I come home when it's safer or just to get on the flight. Obviously, my parents really wanted me home and closer, but I had so much support in Australia. I've been there for six years and I had so many families that would have taken care of me that it was safe there too. So yeah, I was kind of stuck in that double mindset of if it was even worth me coming home with everything and that I've still been playing and around so many people uh yeah it was just I don't know crazy and stressful now you weren't the only American playing in the final Sydney had Sofia Huerta and Aubrey Bledsoe do you know if they were able to get back to the U.S. like you did Yes, um, and we also had Ali Watt, who was a guest player for us, who was American, that um, was one of the girls that her flight got canceled a couple times, but she was on a 6 a.m. flight Sunday, got out, got home, is safe. Um, I was in touch with Sophia because she is now at OL Rain as well, and I was just making sure she felt comfortable and safe to get home, and she was the same thing. Sydney had a bit of, bit of a worst trek maybe because they had to fly to Melbourne to play they had to fly out that same night and she caught a flight the next day and I think probably same with Aubrey as well um but yeah I know that they are home and safe and doing well as well and they they got out as well great um I guess just in general why I'm curious why do you choose to play in Australia during the NWSL offseason I think for me it just partners so well with the NWSL. Like, it's a great time. And definitely, so I started six years ago when I was a bit younger. And for me, that was, like, a great experience to go over. I kind of played a different role. I was, even six years ago, I was an older player in the W League. So my role was a little bit more um, leadership and experience. And that was always good for me to go over there and get that kind of experience to bring back more confidence and stuff like that but also just to get games is always nice because obviously our off season used to be so long Mm -hmm. that it was tough to find a job in the meantime or find so i go home to upland california where there's just not a lot of resources in terms of being able to find a group of girls that could go out and train um or even to try to simulate game time like that's all really hard to do so um, i think that's a big drive for me to get over to Australia and then obviously with a club like City it's great to be connected um, for lots of different reasons um, but they've got great resources you know it's just kind of a routine and for me I'm comfortable there I've been there for so long Um, it's fun to go and compete and win another championship in a different league so I think there's a lot of pool for me And to be fair, I just love the Australian lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the people there. It's very much kind of uh, live first, work second. A little bit slower pace than it is in the U.S. So uh, I think that's a bigger pull for me because that's kind of my personality 
but yeah, I just like love it there. I love everything about it. Um, I've played with some of those girls for now, a couple of them in the NWL and W League for six years now. So I've just really made great friendships, uh, family. Like I told you, I felt so safe over there if I did have to stay. Um, and you know that's the great thing about sport. So I just have lifelong friends now too, and it, it's just too much fun to uh, go over there and play with them all. And especially like a season this year, we had we were undefeated. Um, it was such a special group, both on and off the field. Like you, you, you go through those, and obviously going back to back, it takes a lot out of you physically. But you win a championship, and you come home, and you're like, oh, it's so worth it with those moments that you had, and it was just so special. I do remember spending a lot of time in Melbourne during the 2000 Olympics. The U.S. women's national team played a couple games there. Just a beautiful, very green city, lots of parks, um, very cool sort of art scene. Um, yeah, I, I understand why you like going there. Uh, um, the NWSL was supposed to start in April. Obviously, that's on hold now. Uh, what are you doing to, to try and stay fit during this stretch? Yeah, um, some silver lining. I was supposed to be traveling up to Seattle on the 7th for my start of preseason, which the team had already been in preseason, but I get a little bit of extra rest, which I haven't had. I've been going back to back for seven years now. Um, so there is silver lining in all this uh, when it comes to sports and being an athlete. Um, but I do have a little gym that I've designed in the garage. I've got a treadmill. I've got a bike. I've got all the weights I need. Um, so essentially I've still got all that. Um, obviously the downfall is being able to actually train soccer specific stuff, which, mm -hmm. um, I can go out and do some of that stuff on my own. Um, and obviously if there comes a time where I can be in a smaller group and we are kind of still isolated, I could potentially try and do that. But, um, as of right now, it's mostly just the bike, uh, the treadmill. Um, getting some fresh air outside, mm -hmm. <laughs> lifting, um, kind of just focusing on things I guess I haven't really been able to because of the hustle and bustle of going back from season to season. Um, so just being mindful of my body, resting, um, kind of being able to heal in the ongoing chronic injuries I've had. Uh, so yeah, kind of just taking it and resting and being mm -hmm. happy and you know obviously I get to see some of my family um and then until I'm able to kind of see and be six feet away from <laughs> others mm -hmm. that it's just kind of nice being home yeah uh rain fc got new owners olympic Lyonnais, and mm -hmm. now the team name is ol rain um have you gotten any sense yet on how having these new owners is going to impact the team um, for me, I've been a little bit out of the loop because obviously I've been in the season with um, mm -hmm. W League and obviously while I'm there, that's my priority. But now kind of getting back into the swing of the things, um, I still think um, the Predmores who have been our owners and for me from year one till now will always be considered my owners. Um, I love them to death. They've been great for me personally and I've seen all the work they've put into this club. Um, throughout the years and why they've made this move is still to benefit us girls um, so yeah I think it's at the end of the day it's just something that you know 
we adapt and we continue to grow. And I think that is essentially what rain has always, OL rain, but rain in the past has always kind of um, valued was that they wanted to be the best club in the world. Um, and if this is the next step to do that, um, obviously our, our owners were going to be prepared to do that. And I think it's been a great move. Um, I'm excited. Um, I've heard great things about the coach, obviously, they had started a little bit of preseason, so I've heard um, some really great feedback from the girls. And I think I'm just excited to see, obviously, um, so, how we benefit from it, I guess, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, everyone I know who knows you calls you Lou Barnes. What's the story <laughs> behind your nickname? Oh, so funny. So I think growing up, my mom used to always – so the original nickname is Lulu. It's doubled. But um, – <laughs> she used to always call me that just as a little kid. And then obviously in sport, you get so many nicknames. So it kind of stuck with me. Um, and I think obviously playing, I think at UCLA when I was there from a freshman till a senior, I think there was about four Lawrence and we all had nicknames. So it just stuck. Um, but to be fair, I think my parents now, they both call me Lauren and they're like, why do people call you Lou? Like I want it to be Lauren. I'm like, you gave it to me. It just stuck. So yeah, even um, with the rain and with W League, when they announce my names for going out, it's always Lou Barnes. I sign things Lou Barnes. <laughs> so it's really stuck. But um, yeah, if my parents could have it any other way, it would be Lauren again. <laughs> so you did play with Lauren Holiday. I guess she was Lauren Cheney at UCLA. Uh, what, yep. what was she called? Uh, we used to call her Cheney. So her last name just shortened. Um, and then we had a Lauren Wilmeth, which we used to call her last name Wilmy. Um, <laughs> I was Lou. Yeah, so it was all over the park, but we all had nicknames. We never all went by Lauren. <laughs> Great. Well, I am glad you got back home okay on one of the last flights out of Australia. Uh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a really uncertain time for everyone, but... Uh, really appreciate you coming on the show and, and good luck with everything. Lou Barnes. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, stay safe. Um, I hope all is well in New York and it starts cooling down pretty soon. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Celine Gounder and Lou Barnes, as well as producer Harry Swartout and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Remember, if you like the podcast, it would really help us out if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review, and we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.